0: This is None of Your Business Podcast, a podcast where we talk about none of your business and ask questions that's no one's business. Thank you for joining me today. Now, in this podcast, we bring you inspiring storytelling from the heart. So, if you want to hear some inspirational motivation or whatever else, then stay tuned. So, let's get in with the show. Alright, so I got Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. And in this episode, we talk about the five levels of attachment. We talk about how to have a healthy and happy relationship. And we just talk about what's going on in the world right now. And how to just love yourself and be your authentic self. So this episode was a true honor. Um, I love this guy's books. Yeah, I love the family's books, man. And he's definitely one of my favorite authors. So this is a true honor. I'm going to let you guys get into the episode. Please go read and review on Apple Podcasts and share this with a friend. Please help me help you help the world. All right. So welcome to the None of Your Business Podcast. I got Don Miguel Ruiz, Ruiz Jr., and he goes by Miguel. So we'll just call you Miguel from now on. So who are you? What do you do?
1: Well, uh, my name is Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. I'm an author, a lecturer. I write books uh, based on my family's tradition. Uh, the books I've written so far are The Master Self, Five, Five Levels of Attachment, Living a Life of Awareness, The Little Book of Wisdom, and The Seven Secrets of Happy, Healthy Relationships, which I co-wrote with my friend Heather Ashamara. So basically, I, I share my family's tradition with, everyone who gives us a permission to show that with.
0: Right on, right on. So you started that journey, uh, you being an apprentice under your father, at the age of 14?
1: Yes, my father and my grandmother.
0: Okay, right on. And what, like at 14, did you like, no, like, that's what I wanna do? Like, why did, how were you drawn to that?
1: My family, I I love. I I love my father. I love my grandmother. That's basically how you uh, give attention to somebody. You know, from the moment since I was young, my grandmother is the head of the spiritual family. Uh, Even though she passed away 12 years ago, she's still the head of the the family in a sense of spirituality. She had 13 children, and I have 64 cousins. And uh, since I was young, she shared the tradition in her own unique way. She opened a small little temple in Fargo, Logan where she gave, she was a faith healer. She gave healings and consultations and on Thursdays and Sundays, she gave uh, sermons and she shared the tradition in her own unique way with her and my grandfather. So since I was a young uh, child, spirituality has been in the family as well as uh, being devout Catholic as well. You know, we, we're, we're mestizos and in the sense that we were a merger of, of two civilizations, that's what mestizo is a combination of Mesoamerican uh, indigenous people and European Spanish in particular in Mexico. So, the two traditions of our Mesoamerican traditions with the Catholicism that came from Spain fused together. So, from that point of view, my grandmother always taught from that fusion. My father, being a medical doctor, he rebelled against the tradition in his own way. My grandmother also did it. My great-grandfather did it. They all rebelled. That's apparently a tradition in the family. And uh, my father was a medical doctor. He stopped being a medical doctor when he had some aha moments in life where it made him go in different directions in life. And for me, I was raised in that juxtaposition. I was raised with the duality of having a medical doctor for a father and uncles, or so neurosurgeons and oncologists in the family. And my grandmother is a faith healer, so you have the two uh, worlds right there, as well as I was one of those rare uh, kids that lived in San Diego, and I crossed the border into Tijuana to go to school in Tijuana, but I lived in the States, so I went in that direction, and I was educated with that world, so I came from two different countries from that point of view, even though uh, I was born here in the States and I lived in the States, I went to school in Mexico, so I have the accent that I have reflects that. So I was used to just the positions and dualities, you know, living in two different communities, two different languages, uh, academia and spirituality, Western medicine, and, and, uh, non-traditional medicine. I grew up with that. So, so for, for me, it was normal. That's, that's, that's the environment that I grew up in. So at the age of 14, I gave my attention to my father, to my grandmother and, I love them, that's why I listen to them, but I didn't really start to apply it until my mid-twenties when I graduated from college and you're no longer working for a grade, Uh, life happens. You start learning from your experiences and your own aha moments. And I began to really apply it for the first time in my life. And what really drove me to it is that my father uh, had a massive heart attack in 2002 and when he came out of the coma that he was in for nine weeks, uh, his rehabilitation, he had decided to go back to work, but he was in a frail state. So my brother and I began to help him. Even though my brother Jose Luis had been working for a lot longer than my dad, with my dad, I came in there to help uh, teach because I knew the material. I'd been learning it for, well, after that point, a good uh, 10 years. Uh, 14 years at that point as an apprentice but then as I began to teach you know you can say that I started as the cover band I I covered the classics my father's four agreements the mastery of love and little by little I started getting my own groove my own words I started applying it I started having my own aha moments and I started teaching that little by little so it it started with the love for my grandmother the love for my father and helping him. And the reason why I started because I was working in the film industry for a good 10 years uh, as a film editor, production assistant and all that kind of stuff. And I really enjoyed that world, but I came back because I wanted to help my father. And uh, somewhere along the line, I combined what I learned in film in the film industry with storytelling. And I found my voice. I began to I have my own aha moments. I learned, I applied it to heal myself, and that's what I share. So that's the story. That's
0: that's awesome. Uh so you say that you apply your teachings to heal yourself. You want to share about that?
1: Well, I heal my the I heal the wounds that conditional love left in my life. You know, when people ask me what do I actually do, I help people heal from the wounds that conditional love left in their lives and in their minds. And such mm-hmm. things like that. I'm not a physical healer in the rest of medicine, but I teach and share the elements of the family tradition that allows us to let go of those conditions that subjugate our will, that imposes a, a, a belief of pretending to be something we're not for the sake of someone else's point of view or prejudice. I begin to let go and teach people how to let go of conditional love yeah. using the total tradition.
0: Mm, So how do you love yourself or somebody unconditionally?
1: By willing to see myself as I am, by not pretending to be something I am not for the sake of someone else's judgment. Mm. Conditional love only sees what it wants to see. It projects onto the world like Don Quixote projects uh, the image of Dulcinea or uh, giants instead of windmills. That's conditional love. Unconditional love is the willingness to see life as is the way I am. To stop looking for myself through an identity with a definition and to know myself through the experience of being me. When I'm able to do that for myself, I can begin to see the people in my life. For example, with my father and my mother, I take off the mask of mom, I take off the mask of father, and I see two people who are doing the best with what they've got. I see them as peers, two people who are trying to figure out how to live their life as best as they can. And sometimes that mask of father and mother blinds us to who they are, you know, the expectation of who they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to be, how they should have done it. They should have done this. They should have done that because their mother, their father, and the expectations we project onto them. But all of that blinds us to the person who they really are. They are just like everyone else. They're just like me, people who are trying to figure it out trying to do the best with what they got. Because here's the thing that we parents will tell people who don't have kids or especially our kids is that we have no idea what we're doing. We're doing the best with what we've got. We play it by ear because as soon as you get used to being the parent of a one year old, they turn two, making everything you knew about parenting irrelevant because the child you are raising is changing. And then Mm -hmm. they turn four, they turn eight, they turn 20, they turn 30. You're always trying to figure out how to be a parent and what makes us a parent is the willingness to engage that child. Any person can bring a child into the world, but what makes us a parent is the willingness to engage. But that requires the willingness to accept with humility that we have no idea what we're doing. Because like I said before, as soon as you get used to it, the world changes because the person you're raising changes. If you apply the same impact to ourselves, I'm not the same person I was when I was 17, 18, 20, 24, 30, 40, I've changed. The same things I used to like, I no longer like. Uh, same things that motivated me before, I don't no longer motivate me. Now I'm motivated by something else. Getting to know myself allows me to find out what those things motive, that motivate me are, what brings joy to my life, what doesn't bring joy to my life. And once I do that within myself and see myself as I am, to respect myself, to respect my no, which is just as powerful as my yes, And to respect myself, to experience the consequences of my own choices, I can share that with people because I can't give what I do have. So the way I start loving someone unconditionally is to see them for who they are. So just like I took off the mask of my father and mother, I took off the mask of my wife. I took off the Mm -hmm. mask of my son and my daughter and I see them for who they are. And to respect them is to respect their no, which is just as powerful as their yes. But I also respect them to experience, for them to experience the consequences of their own choices. Mm-hmm. And that is what, for me, unconditional love is the willingness to engage someone without the need to impose my will or subjugate my will to them and know that I only control to the tips of my finger. I don't control their perception, I don't control their will. They do. I control my will and I control my own perception. But in order for me to know exactly what I control, it starts by knowing. Who I am, not as a definition, but as through experience of being me. And that's how I see unconditional love. I see myself.
0: Okay. So do you we're not born with these conditions of love. We were born and like, how do you think people develop these conditions for love?
1: Is well, it ego? We, is it well yes and no. The function of ego is to keep the illusion of life. It's easier to understand ego as a function rather than a concept. Okay. The function of ego is to keep an illusion of life. So let's say we have a model of domestication. For us in that tradition, domestication is a system of reward and punishment by which we model the behavior of an individual. It's another word we can describe as conditioning. We create an image. In my case, let's say Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. There's an image of Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. that I have to live up to according to conditional love. If I live up to that image of not taking things personal, not making assumptions, always do my best. But if I forget one of them, oh, no, how can I call myself Don Miguel Ruiz Jr.? And I begin the diatribe of judgment, punishing myself for not living up to that image of perfection. That is Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., who, if he doesn't take things personal, doesn't make assumptions, is impeccable with the word and always does his best then he is worthy of the, of the Nido Miguel Ruiz Jr. because he's, he's lived with that image of perfection. But if he falls short, then I'm worthy of the punishment, which is my own self-rejection. And at mm-hmm. that moment, I've turned the four agreements into the four conditions. So that reward and punishment, you can say that we were born into a world that domesticates us to live up to an image that someone expects of us be it mother, be it father, be it society, be it friends, be it girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever it is being projected. You know, in high school or in in middle school or elementary, if you live up to this image, you're cool. And if you're cool, your reward is that you're acceptance, you're popular, Mm -hmm. you're one of us. But if you don't live up that image of what is cool, then you will be ostracized. You're gonna be rejected. You're gonna be called a square, a nerd, a geek. And not only will you not be popular, we're going to ostracize you until you get hit with it, man. And at that moment, we can see how we begin to domesticate. We pretend to be something we're not for the sake of someone else's point of view. And not just with the popular kids, the jocks of the cheerleaders, with the god kids, with the hip-hop crew, the country people, the Democrat, liberal, all these kind of things. We create this image of what is supposed to be and what it's not supposed to be, and we pretend to be something we're not. And that's the problem. So you can say that... We are domesticated or conditioned with conditional love. From the very beginning that someone projects a mask onto us of who we're supposed to be and we believe it. Like Eleanor Roosevelt says, no one can make me feel inferior without my consent. So you can say that we begin to do this work until we reach this aha moment. We realize that the only reason why we were domesticated is because we believed it. Mm -hmm. We believe that we're not worthy of love. Until we reach that image that someone projects onto us, that we're not worthy of whatever acceptance because we're not cool, we're not smart, or, what, or we're not talented, or whatever it is that we remember what high school or middle school was. And I, even though I say high school, middle school, to a certain degree, we still do it because mm-hmm. that's what's happening when people argue with one another with their politics and, and concepts and the things like that. So if you begin to recognize the root cause of it and in conflict that arises, you let your emotions will let you know that what is off, what not what's not in sync and what's not in well, what's not making you happy. So you begin to look for those things and you see that yes, I was born into the world where everyone domesticates each other, but it's because I gave it permission. So for example, it starts with that moment of acceptance. In my case, yes, my name is Domingo Reese Jr and I do take things personal. I do make assumptions. Sometimes I'm not impeccable with the word. Sometimes I'm not skeptical at all. I buy a hook, line, and sinker. And sometimes I don't do my best, just ask my wife. She is my witness. It's the moment where I stop pretending to be something I am not. So ego, from that point of view, is protecting that image or that model by which I domesticate myself or condition myself. In this case, Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., someone who doesn't really exist
0: I exist. Okay. Okay. That's. Mm, I like that. Thank you. So with, you know, this whole COVID-19 thing thing going on Mm -hmm. and like we're starting to come out of it, uh, I think, in I live in Montana right now. And on like Sunday, we're going to start slowly reopening. Mm -hmm. How can people detach from this idea? That we were stuck, like it was a terrible thing, and not be stuck in the past.
1: Well, we realized what happened. You know, it, it's uh, we live in a first world country, but nature will always win. That's a reality. As someone who lives in Florida, whether they live in a first world country, comes a hurricane, and it, you know, we we know who's in charge. Yeah. Um, this virus has basically, according to what I've read. You know, take it with a grain of salt, 98% recovery rate, you know, with a one to 2% mortality rate. So in my point of view, what we, are, what we are doing this for us, we're still extending it. We're in Nevada. We're still in the middle of it. Uh, the 98% is taking care of the 2% because those who don't fall, have a recovery rate. We can have the antibodies. As far as we know, we don't know if they'll come back or not. It might be like, uh, like getting a tetanus, uh, uh, TV shot and also and you'll always be po- positive to the TV because you've been exposed to it. You know, that's, that's my case. I got a got a vaccination for tuberculosis and since that date, I'll always uh, test positive because I have that, you know, I have that antibodies, I'm not sure if that's what it is or not, who knows, we'll find out, but in my point of view, we don't know if you fall in the 98% or the 2%. So what we can do is to help each other out. You know, if it's staying at home, putting on the mask, staying within six, uh, six, uh, six feet from one another, it's a way to help each other out. Now, mind you, there's people who also will have a financial devastation happening because staying at home and all that kind of thing, we are already seeing the consequences of that. So what's the balance between the two? You know, we live in a time where the beautiful thing is that we know from history, what happens, you know, the Spanish flu a hundred years ago, the, the black plague, uh, 200 years ago, the bubonic plague. I mean, uh, the, the times of cholera in Latin America and many other viruses, it's something that happens. Like now we know that it's a ba- virus or a bacteria and a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, they still didn't know people, they killed women. They, they accused them of being witches because they thought it was um, black magic that did it, you know, someone put a curse on this town and things like that. But luckily for all of us, we don't live in such things. So now we have the experience of what time and history has taught us. We see that at the end of the Spanish flu came the roaring twenties, you know, the the big economic boom that came at the tail end of world war one and the Spanish flu. And then at the end of that 10 year boom, we have the, the great depression and t- 10 to 14 years of that. So we're in a time where are we going to repeat history or are we not? So it's, it's uncharted times, but at the very least, now we know what causes it. We know that, uh, it's infection of a virus. It, uh, it, it tends to live on a surface much longer than any other virus can be. It's living outside a host for a long, long time, you know, especially in a shoe, it lasts five, five days. It doesn't survive too much on the cloth for too long, but it does survive longer in glass and plastic. Little things now that we are aware of that we realize that's the reason why it's such a fast spreading, highly infectious disease. So we look at all these things and we, there's people who have made tough choices of, of, bunkering down, you know, the social distancing and the restrictions and closing mm-hmm. things down. It's like, the, the, what are, What? What? don't we know that the most capitalist country in the world closed everything down? What don't we know? What are not we be told? But at that point, it's all the what ifs, you know, it, it, you can get, get into the whole conspiracy of things. But in reality, you look at, at the very ground level of what's happening and we realize that as a community, as in within a family, we've always taken care of our elderly. We do our very best to protect our ancestors. And this particular disease, virus, takes takes full aim at our elders. And of course, some other people who have a predisposed condition. And that's exactly what happened. And also the fact that people are asymptomatic, that you can be having the virus and not tell that you have it and you're contaminating it. So I think all this stuff is science and we've, we've learned from the past and now we have a choice. Now we have a choice to learn from it again. It's hopefully not repeat history like we did 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. Uh, we'll see what happens. But what does happen is that we have a choice to take care of one another you know, if we fall in the 98%, we take care of the 2%. If we fall in the 2%, we won't know until it happens. But we do what we can to help each other. And that's what community does. It's what family does. It's what we humans do. You know, We take care of one another. Sometimes we're blinded by our attached beliefs. Sometimes we're attached uh, by our own needs. Sometimes we are in desperate need of help. And that's a position we're in right now. So as we are coming into this, it's a totally different awareness that, you know, this disease, what has made it such a strong impact is that it's made us all face our mortality. And are we afraid of our own mortality? Do we come to peace with our mortality? Or, and also to face the acceptance that the mortality of the people in our life and if you have people who have passed away, my deepest condolences to you. You know, I've I've watched my father. Uh, he had a massive heart attack in 2002, like I said before. In 2010, he had a a heart transplant, and because he had a heart transplant, his immune system was suppressed, which means he has been uh, susceptible to lesser potent viruses than this one. Like, for example, if he was in an elevator and someone coughed with a, your average day cold, that cold could kill my father. So we spent 10 years of, he spent 10 years of figuring out how to live life, being aware. He said, I'm not going to wait in the sofa waiting for death. I'm going to go out there and live it. But it's also realized that as a doctor himself, He can't be cavalier about it. He is going to take care of himself, be responsible for things. And there's that balance. Like, to one point, how do we take care of ourselves? How do we take care of others? How do we take care of one another? And that's the question for me. This is, to me, this whole virus thing, this whole situation is exactly that. How do we take care of one another? And, of course, people are going to make decisions that will not be popular because it goes against your our own uh, needs and, and necessities, you know, but at the same time, that's always been the case. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So where does someone learn their attachments and why do they do it?
1: Well, to me, an attachment is to invest something that's not a part of you and make it a part of you by investing in yourself emotionally, intellectually, energetically to something. We grow attached. For example, we don't get attached to material things. We get attached to what that material thing means to us. Okay. We actually get more attached to a belief, an idea, than we do an object. Hey,
0: you or want you to tell me money. more about
1: we're, that? We're atti- we're a- when we get attached to beliefs and ideas, it's a lot harder to pinpoint than attachment to material things. You know, in, in in the Buddhist tradition, to learn to let go of things, that's the main principle thing. So an attachment, you can say, it's healthy in a sense when we engage a moment. That's a healthy thing. It becomes unhealthy when, when the time comes to let go, we can't. It's healthy to be able to detach, attach, detach, engage, disengage, Attach, detach, that's, that's healthy. What makes an attachment unhealthy is when the time comes to detach, we can't. Mm-hmm. And mo- mostly it comes because we've invested in ourselves through an identity. It means something to us. You know, for example, I, in the book, The Five Levels of Attachment, I used a, a game because it's easier to talk about sports as opposed to politics or religion. You mm-hmm. level two or level three, I lose people. But I, with sports, I can go a little further. Mm-hmm. And basically is you know at level 1 not the authentic self you imagine you're sitting in the stands and there's a field at level 1 you clearly know that you're in the stands and you're not really rooting for either side you're just there to enjoy 60 to 90 minutes of something a game and when the, when the game ends you leave it behind it says nothing about who you are but you enjoyed those 60 to 90 minutes you enjoyed the passion you enjoyed the the theater or, or the the drama of it but then you realize that if you invest a little bit of yourself into this game, you might enjoy the roller coaster a bit more. The ups and downs are a, bit, a little bit more thrilling. And you invest yourself. At, you look at the two teams. You first look at the names of the two teams. You, you, you resonate more with this one. It has a. You like the colors of the uniform. There's a player that reminds you of you or someone you know. This person has the, the last name Ruiz. I'm going to root for that team. And you look for things that you find yourself in. And you decide to root for them. That doesn't mean you're going to root against the other team, but you're going to just engage it. So at that moment, at level two preference, I prefer to root for this team. Mind you, you're still aware that there's a line separating the stands from the field, and you're just enjoying the ups and downs of a game. Great. And that's awesome. But when the referee blows his or her whistle to end the game, that emotional investment, you detach from it. Mm-hmm. You let it go because it, it was enjoyable there. It's kind of like if, if, if you see the football, uh, the Super Bowl, for example, and you're, none of your teams are there, but you want to enjoy the, the, the game. You look for things in either team that you like, you know, it, and you enjoy the game. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, mm-hmm. you separate because that's not really your team. After all, you just did that to, just to have fun for that, for that two or yeah. three hours.
0: Enjoy yourself and then exactly. Walk away.
1: So level three identity. Imagine you begin to identify yourself with that team. Now you carry the colors. Imagine you put on the jersey to support this team, and you call yourself a fan, and you have the colors. When the referee blows his or her whistle to end the game, if they win, yeah, you've got a bragging rights for a whole week. If you don't win, you're kind of miserable for the, for the rest of the week. You're, you're a bit bummed. You're, you're a little bit sad. So now it's begun to bleed outside of those 30, 60, or 90 minutes, however long that game is. And now what's happening in the field begins to affect you personally. So the the line between the stands and the field begins to blur just a little bit. Mind you, there's nothing wrong with this because imagine you have your your jersey, but you go to a bar and you see a jersey of, of another team like. I, I grew up a Charger fan. Now I, I, like I like the Raiders a little bit, but growing up, that was a big no-no. You, you don't do that. So but back then, you, you would see them and like, hey, I like that team too. Let me buy you a beer. And I can even say why your team is good. You know, you you, you do that.
0: Have that healthy conflict.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah because you find that. You like something. To, you like a similar thing. You have a common ground. An identity is a good thing in the sense that it allows you to identify with people who have a common interest as you. It's like breaking an ice. It, it's something that allows you to find new connections, new community, new friends. And you know, you like football. That's the thing. Hey, uh, your team might be good. Mine may not be, or whatever. But we, it's still humanity. We still see each other as human beings. Level four. Internalization. Now I begin to see myself as a hardcore fan. What happens on the field defines who I am. If the players play good, I good because they represent me. They better not make me look bad. So they, they better not do a, a a butt fumble or anything like that. So you 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 put that kind of pressure on them, and then also the, your fellow fans. We're supposed to live up to this image. And forget about buying that person a beer. You're gonna punch that guy because they're your rivals. And at that point, the line between the stands and the field really are it all—it's—it's it's so blurred that you think that it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's fused together almost. But you still see them as the athletes. You know, you see those players. And they're, they're larger than life. They're more important than your job. They're more important than what you do. You know, it was like during the season, like you live for those Sunday mornings. You're like you watch the show on, on on Monday morning quarterback. You wait for the, the the inside the NFL. Then you look into the team, and like basically a whole week is all about that team, and you forget about your own life. You know your own work and all kind of things. So it tells you who to hang out with, who not to hang out with, and all kind of things. So at that point. You attach yourself so much that even when those thirty or sixty or seventy minutes end or ninety minutes end a clear definition of when the game ends, it begins to bleed outside that time frame, which leads us to level five fanaticism where i my blood is the color of my team, and I'm willing to kill and I'm willing to die in order for to defend my team you know at, at that point. I don't, no longer see the humanity of the person across the room from me. I only see a color that either I agree I agree with or I disagree with. And at, at that point, we lose sight of the humanity of another person, but mostly I lose humanity of my own because I'm willing to die for this team. Yeah. I'm willing to go and riot if my team loses because we cannot lose because the referee got, you know he was it was a sellout, he mm-hmm. obviously was bought, and he botched yeah. the, the, the cause against us. At that point, you, you no longer accept it. so the thing about attachment is that the more attached we are, the more it begins to distort and filter our perception to the point where we only see what we want to see so that at that point, an attachment becomes really unhealthy because it impacts not only my relationships with the people in my life, not only does it impact my engagement with my work or my passion, my whatever, it's to- taken completely over. Now with sports, it's easy to see that it's a little bit silly. It's a, it's a game, it's, it's a corporation that sells you tickets and t-shirts and all this kind of stuff. It's just, it's just a game, You know, they, they moved from San Diego to Los Angeles. It's, it's, that broke the illusion of it very, very good for me. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a corporation. Mm-hmm. But take politics or, or religion, and it gets a little bit more confusing or more intense because we're so attached to it that you know, we, 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 it blinds us. And now we don't listen to one another, and we're willing to kill each other, and there's a civil war. So mm-hmm. from that point of view, an attachment is unhealthy. But if we're able to recognize that, when the time comes that it's time to let go and we do, we realize that we're much, much more than anything we're attached to. You know, what defines us is not that color. What defines us is not that logo, not that team, that philosophy. We are human beings that are constantly changing. Kind of like I said earlier, I'm not the same person. I was at 14, 20, 25 or 30, you know, if I was still pretending to be the high school uh, hero, like uh, like uh, what's his uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite, who's still living in 1984 okay. when he was the star quarterback in the height of his popularity, and he wants to go all the way back. He's spending the whole movie trying to find a way back to those days where he finds acceptance because he hasn't moved forward. We have we were stuck in a moment, so let go of that that moment to let go of that person that we used to be, to let go of that philosophy, the idea, then all of a sudden the whole spectrum opens up, the whole view, like there's so much, you know, that's the thing about attachment, it does this, like a a horse blinders, it makes so hyper-focus on one thing that it blinds us to all the things, but as we slowly detach, it opens up our perception. And that that is the ability to let go. So for me to learn to detach is first recognizing how attached you are, the willingness to see it. And then comes this line that goes, um, a moment of clarity without any action is just a thought that passes in the wind. But a moment of clarity followed by action becomes a pivotal moment in our life. It's like a drug addict or alcoholic that wakes up from the stupor for all these years and has that brief moment of clarity of saying, what have I done? So that moment mm-hmm. you have a choice to go back to the hair of the dog and take that drink that allows that hangover to go away or you go in a different direction and you embrace that hangover and you go into detox and by the end of it, you don't need it, you're clear.
0: Absolutely, you know, this is kind of like a full circle moment for me. Uh, before I got into your work myself, my mentor, uh, he just did the same, not the same, he explained the five levels of attachment, not as much as details you, but just did a prefront, a brief description and it got me interested in your work. And, you know, before that, uh, before I started working with him, I woke up in the hospital after ICU or in the ICU, overdosed, I was homeless in Vegas uh, for months. I'm a recovering drug addict, heroin was my drug of choice. And I was so attached to this codependent toxic relationship and that lifestyle. I didn't know who I was. I did not know who I was. And then I started going through that process. But when I woke up from the hospital after the overdose, I was like, what, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know what sobriety looks like. I know what this looks like. I like I need to get away from this evil person. Mm-hmm. Like it's just because she, she went to jail and I felt like it was my fault why she went to jail and I couldn't get her out. So I, my source of love was gone. I didn't know. She made me happy. If she was upset, I was upset. Just codependent to- toxic, just not good at all. So using, you know, work like you and the books that you do, Um, uh, have you applied any of these tools in your personal life and came and overcame any struggles?
1: Well, yeah, yeah, I I have, you know, I, um, that's the reason why I wrote them, because the, the, uh, it's my own reflection. It's my own path. You know, It's like I can't write what I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I only write about what I know. For me, um, let's see. I woke, I woke up in the middle of the night in 2016 with heart palpitations. And I, I run races. I started running marathons and half marathons sometimes in 2013. So in 2016, I know the feeling of when a heart goes a little fast because I, I run it. So it's three o'clock in the morning, and I'm feeling this heart palpitation, and I'm going, "What? What is doing this? What is causing this?" So process of elimination comes out that one, it only happens when I drink alcohol, mm-hmm. and my wife and I don't drink that often, but we drank enough on Friday and Saturdays, and sometimes on Wednesdays, sometimes Thursdays. But it was one of those things that you know on the, that four-day, maybe sometimes into Sunday, we would have our drinks, you know, with a two or three bottle uh, bottles of wine. And as I dug in deep, I became aware that I also have sleep apnea. I you know, you did a test and all that, and I have sleep apnea. So one night I came home from a trip. I hadn't taken, I hadn't had a single drink for a good month or two. And I have it again. And, you know, we open a bottle, a second, and we open a third, but we didn't finish it. Was, it was mostly just, we just served a third, and we never really didn't to touch the glass. But I was nice and toasty at that point. I went to bed and, and that night that heart palpitation came in strong, it very strong. I was sweating. It was just, it was bad. It was the closest thing I've ever experienced to death in my life. It's like a, It felt like I was on the verge of having a heart attack or something. I, as I woke up, I'm like, I don't want to experience And then I realized I'm not in my 20s. I'm not in my 30s. I'm 40. I'm 40 years old. I'm in the zone. I'm in the zone where people... Pass away from such a thing. Yeah. You know, my father had a massive heart attack at the age of forty-nine, and exactly between three and four o'clock in the morning. And he also has sleep apnea. Oh. I recognize this. I know where I'm heading. Mm-hmm. So, unlike my twenty or thirty-something-year-old, when I says, "That's it, no more, never again," this one it says, "No." I realized because it's the first time I really experienced uh, what nearing that precipice of death or heart attack, in my case, is like. So I had a motivator. And uh, as I as I progressed in this whole journey of letting go, I found out the reason why is that I, I work with a lot of uh, rehab. Uh, I work with a rehabilitation center, which I know what addiction really is. So I don't have that monster, and I respect that monster quite a good because I work with people who do. Mm-hmm. The reason why I know I don't have that monster is that I had accidentally had a shot of uh, of, uh sake ones because uh, they have a sh- the restaurant I go to has shooters, oyster shooters, but they don't have alcohol. It's, it's ponzu sauce with a lot of spice. Mm-hmm. Well, I saw uh, oyster shooters at this other restaurant in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Right. I went to visit and I didn't read the description of the menu. I ordered. I took a shot. I'm like, oh, that's that's Take. And I didn't want the second one. I was I was not at all interested in the second one, but I felt like my my I lost my word, like how can I face? I like, can I ever teach with that word and I realized what my real addiction is that domestication that's that's my addiction, like trying to live up because i gotten used to saying one month, two month, three months, yeah. ten months, now I totally understand why people say one day at a time you know yeah. it's it's a totally different thing, but the the reason why I was waking up in the middle of the night with sleep apnea is sorry, with the uh, heart palpitations is that Add alcohol to sleep apnea; it relaxes the muscles way too much. And the reason why I was having the heart palpitations is that I wasn't breathing, and the heart is doing its best to send oxygen to my brain. The consequence of that is that I could have a stroke or a heart mm-hmm. attack. A heart attack I can, I can deal with, but a stroke—that's a Russian roulette I don't want to play. So. That was my main motivator to let go of it and you know, everything I learned from running a marathon, you know, like it's something I, I started doing when I was writing the, the, the five levels of attachment, little by little, you know, I started with two miles and I could barely run two miles. It was hardest thing. And little by little I added to, then I ran five miles for the first time in my life and it was the greatest experience because I crossed a threshold. My mindset I could never cross. I proved myself wrong. And the best question of my life came in. What else can I do? And the great thing about that question is that I answer it anything with confidence, just follow through. Let's Go of alcohol, minus that one, you know, accident, but it's been a little, almost four years since I stopped drinking alcohol. Congrats. I also stopped drinking coffee. You know, that, that one was tough. Oh. The toughest one right now is spice, you know, letting go of Chile and spice. that's, that's. that's. <laughs> That's, that's a tough one. But, uh, but yeah, I stopped, I stopped drinking coffee. I stopped drinking alcohol. And I've applied everything I've learned in that. You know, I, I, with a, When I finished writing The Mastery of Self, I applied everything I learned to let go of alcohol and mm. that kind of thing.
0: Right on. So you uh...
1: – And congratulations on, on your sobriety, by the way.
0: Thank Sorry you. Sorry for that no no it's all it's all right thank you i appreciate that i wanted
1: to say congratulations on, on the work you're doing
0: that's awesome thank you thank you I, I appreciate that and thank you for sharing that stuff with me i you know it's not easy for people to be open and vulnerable about things so, so i thank you for doing that
1: oh, no, no. I uh, so
0: um <laughs> uh, you know back when i was talking about the codependency stuff if like if anybody is like out there who's listening who is not in a happy, healthy relationship. Like, what can they do? Like, what are the signs that they should walk away, or how can they have a happy and healthy relationship?
1: Well, whenever a couple comes up and asks me a question of uh, for advice, and this is advice I uh, this is a question I give to a person or to a couple do you want to stay together? Relationships exist for as long as two people say yes to one another. Mm. That's it. If one Changes a yes to a no, the relationship ceases to exist. It only exists when two people say yes at the same time. So, when I ask a couple, do you guys want to stay together? If they both say yes, the rest is easy because that yes is the motivator that allows us to get through a lot of the hurdles. It's the thing that allows us to create a whole new culture. When both say no, that's also easy because they're being honest with themselves. It's tough when one says yes and the other one says no. Now, to the question, as an individual that's looking for that, uh, that abusive, that's in a relationship like that, understand one thing, no one abuses us more than we abuse ourselves. We reach a point that is uh, if I quote uh, uh, Samantha Jones from Sex and the City, there's a deal breaker. There's a line in the sand that no one will cross and no one can abuse us more than that point, you know, it's, it's like, we, there's a level of tolerance, but tolerance, but you've reached that point it's it's done, you know, it's, it's over, you know, all right, identify that line. What is that line, that line in the sand? You know, like I have the image of, uh, of, uh, of, Bugs Bunny with, uh, with Elmer Fudd or Sam, Yosemite Sam or something like that. I dare you to cross this line. I dare you to cross this line. Well, what's the line that you're not willing to cross. And mm. the moment you happen. Bugs Bunny will not have control over you. It's a it's a moment where you get to know yourself. What do you want? If you want this person and you want to stay in this person, go right ahead. You're there. But if you reach a point where you know what you realize this is not healthy for me. At that point, is about be willingness to let go of a pain that we're used to. You know, we we have we we get accustomed. We we it's an interesting time thing when we get in the comfort zone and the comfort zone happens to be pain mm-hmm. because that's what we're used to. That's the, that's the only reason why we know that we're worthy of love if we tolerate pain or someone domesticated us to believe that or conditioned us to believe that. Well, our emotions will let us know when we've had enough and it, it requires an incredible amount of strength to do that, to take that stuff and it's not easy. You know, I've, in my life, I've, I've, I've I remember getting up and leaving. And the hardest part about leaving a situation like that is breaking the illusion of happily ever after. Like, you know, if I put more effort into this, if I put more effort, this will be beautiful. This will be good. It's supposed to be like this. But you get to the point where you realize that you're walking away and you feel like you're about to betray that. But also you realize that that exactly belief is what kept you trapped in it all along the way and it's willing, the willingness to break away and the reason why you're breaking away is you realize for the probably for the very first time i don't want this mm-hmm. and that comes from that answer so that's the question that would be do you want to stay in this relationship or not and be honest with yourself because if you're answering trying to satisfy someone else's opinions, and that could include your parents, that could include your friends, that could Mm. include your society, that could include your your beloved, then you're not doing it for yourself. You're still trying to satisfy someone else's needs or conditioning of you. Mm. What do you want? And, And answering that to some, that is the most bravest thing. And someone will say, well, aren't I selfish? Aren't I this, aren't I that? But mind you, No, it's not selfish. Someone convinced you that that is being selfish with a judgment, but it's really just taking care of yourself. And that's what a deal breaker is. That's what the line of self-respect is. The moment where I decide to take care of myself because I can't give what I do not have. So if you're in an abusive relationship, it is going to be tough. It is going to feel like heartbreak. It is going to feel all kind of things, but you've come to the point where you realize that the only reason why you're there is not because you love it's because you don't know any other pain but this one you like it's you're so used to it that you don't know who you are without it and that is scary so a lot of a lot of us that's scary yeah so it takes it's a willingness to take a step onto the unknown and trust in your ability to heal. Because if, if something I've learned after all these years of doing this work is that we heal with our own permission. We, we, we heal by giving our, ourselves the permission to heal. Mm-hmm. That is like we go to that doctor, we go to that therapist, we reach out, we call that hotline, we talk to our friend, we admit that we may have PTSD, we may have an addiction. And all of a sudden, that, that thing becomes this action of love for myself, you know, not so long, just a little bit. You, you, you said that I was, I was being good about uh, being honest about that step about the alcohol. And I said, yeah, it's, it's the thing that keeps me humble in realizing that at any given moment, you know, I can go in a different direction in life, but I made a choice to heal and Absolutely. I can abuse that. But the best way to let go of conditional love is to forgive ourselves for ever saying yes to it in the first place. If we can do that with conditional love, we can also do that with our addictions. I forgive myself for ever saying yes to that in the first place. I can forgive myself for saying yes to that abusive relationship. Forgive me, Father, I did not know, but now I do.
0: I like that, thank you. So uh, I got a couple last questions for you. I wanna respect your time. Uh one, where can people find you on social media? uh
1: well our, our home base is our website, miguelreese.com, migalreese okay. But of course I am on in Instagram, which is uh under D Miguel Rich Jr. Uh, I think let me look at that. Is that really it? <laughs> uh Facebook is Don Jr., Instagram is also uh sorry, Twitter is Don Jr. Um Yeah, D uh it's Don Miguel Rich Jr. That's very simple, straight to the point um i tend to answer on there you know i i I, i'm on linkedin but i never answer linkedin for some it's 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 overwhelming Mm. and uh and i interact with people on facebook and um and sometimes on twitter like i i I try to sometimes it's overwhelming so i just i stick to instagram and facebook most of the time keep it simple yeah yeah it's, it's, it's overwhelming there's just so much and i'm the one doing it you know i don't have a team uh, leading my, my father does, you know, he has a team that does the social media, but I, I do it myself. I, I I'm, I'm the one who engages it.
0: Awesome. And so your home base, can people buy your books on your website? Uh,
1: we, there's a link that takes you to either Amazon, Barnes and Noble or IndieBound.org. That's, that's the independent bookstore uh, website collection. No, it, it, it connects you to your independent bookstore. Gotcha. So okay. it's basically, you know, those are the main channels right now Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Borders, uh, a long time ago, you know, it, it no longer is with us. But uh, and in indiebound.org the has them. So, yeah, if you go to our website, it'll just take you to a link to those sites.
0: Okay. Right on. Uh, do you have a morning routine?
1: Yes. Well, as a father, um, my, my routine when the kids are at school, as I wake up, I, I quickly change and I, I get my son ready to go to school and my daughter goes to school. You know, I, I, Their bus comes in at 6.35 in the morning, so we wake up at 5.30 in the morning. And that's what I do, you know, if, 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 if there's snow, I shovel the snow. That's I enjoyed shoveling. I enjoy shoveling. I, I, I enjoyed enjoy, uh, doing laundry and I enjoyed washing the dishes. It's, it's peaceful, especially when I tour, when I come home from a tour, those three things make me feel like I've, I, I'm, it's a piece Besides running and running distance. I run, I run between three to 10 miles every other day and wow. kickboxing. I enjoy that too, but there's something about doing those very simple household things that make me feel at home. But during the coronavirus, has changed a little. So the very first thing I do when I wake up, um, I get dressed. I don't stay longer in my pajamas than I need to only because I feel like as soon as I get dressed, I'm ready to go. And mm. it's something that I do is like, I, it's, it's a conscious choice to get myself ready. I'll do my, Morning videos on Facebook and YouTube. I, I read during Monday through Friday. I read from my books and in Spanish and in English, and that's part of my routine. But uh, now that my kids are doing social learning, I I get ready and prepare the day's lessons for my son. You know, my wife and I tag team on that one. My son has autism, that's why we do that. You know, with my daughter she doesn't have autism, so she's really really competitive. So she's very self-driven. So for my daughter, I'm just the it guy. So overall, the answer is I'm a father and a husband, and that's my responsibility. That's my, my, that's my gig. That's how I, my, my first thing in the morning, that's what I do. I, I get myself ready to help take care of them.
0: Love it. That's awesome. So what is your message to the world?
1: So enjoy life en- mm. enjoy it. You know, you're, you're the sum of every decision. But at the same time, you are the youngest you will ever be at this very moment. How do you want to live your life? How do you want to engage it? The beautiful thing about those questions is that only you get to answer it because you know what you like, you know what you don't like. So enjoy
0: being you. Love it, love it. Okay, guys. So I hope that you loved that episode with Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. So please share this with somebody go rate and review this on apple podcast and if you do rate and review this on apple podcast or itunes i will give you a shout out during the next episode so go rate and review it share with a friend and guys so if you really want to support this podcast please go to www.eastcoasttags.com and buy you know a hoodie shirt you know pride month is coming up and they got a gay pride theme so you can get 10% off and support my podcast and support the lgbtq community and get some amazing apparel at www.eastcoasttags.com. promo code none of your business all one word